Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Good to have you all out. I'm honored by your presence here tonight. Thanks for coming. Uh, if you can't see my T-shirt, uh, this was uh, Jeremy Valenti kind of had the idea, and Amy Rambo made it for me. Fun fact, I am a, I'm a biblicist. That's what it says. I'm a biblicist. You say, what's a biblicist? Well, that's going to be a major, uh, major topic tonight that we will, we will consider. So uh, let's uh, pray, and then we'll get into our study here together. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble. Ask your blessing on our time together, or, well, all the other classes as well. Thank you for all the workers. Uh, thank you for all who have come to study. May we uh, profit from our time together. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me start with a couple of slides here as we do. And uh, Jesus will either reign over you, uh, either by your consent or without it. You know, he is going to be Lord, one way or another. And then the second uh, slide here. Similar, uh, A.W. Tozer, Christ will be Lord or he will be judge. Every man must decide whether he will take him as Lord now or face him as judge then. So, uh, yeah, clearly. Okay, uh, we're going to pick it up tonight. I'm not going to try to go too fast. However far I get, I get. I, I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the hecklers, uh, yeah, I, I understand, good reason. But uh, let's talk about uh, believer, disciple, uh, starting on page 161. Uh, scriptural evidence that in salvation one becomes a disciple of Christ. Uh, top line there, there, there are those that teach one becomes a believer, and then later they may or may not become a disciple. I, um, they say you can be a believer and never become a disciple in your whole life. I mean, so where we have this constant stream of Christian carnality, they made some kind of profession, we've never seen Jesus since in their life. Um, next paragraph, however, in saving faith, one enters into a discipleship relationship with the Lord. Uh, the word disciple uh, simply means follower or learner. Or I think it's a combination of believer, follower, learner. Uh, a disciple is a learning follower. In the, the, in the New Testament, there are true disciples and there are false disciples. Uh, Paul said that one of the perils that he dealt with was perils among false brethren. Many will say, Lord, Lord, on Judgment Day. However, all true believers in the New Testament are shown to be disciples. They have a kind of faith that genuinely follows Christ. Not perfectly, but definitely. Uh, skip the next paragraph. We are not saved by following, but if we are saved, the fruit will be seen in the following, starting with being baptized. Uh, we are saved by faith alone, but it must be the right kind of faith. <clears throat> a true saving faith is a faith that follows. It's not about the perfection of our life, but it is certainly about the direction of our life. Uh, Warren Wiersbe would say, we are not sinless, but we will sin less, right? Yeah, I think that, that follows. Uh, so we must be clear. <clears throat> we are not saved by discipleship, following. But if we are saved, we are disciples, followers. We are saved by faith alone, but the right kind of faith follows. Okay, let's go to the next page. <clears throat> Actually, to page uh, 163, under the top reference there, pointing toward his disciples, Jesus said, here are my mother and my brothers. I mean, those who have a uh, family relationship with him. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Whoever does the will of my father. Uh, 
thus, disciples are shown to be those who have a personal relationship with Christ that is reflected in obedience. Go down to John 8, 30, 31. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. There is an interesting play on words here in verses 30 and 31. In verse 30, it says many claimed to believe in him. But then verse 31, it clarifies that they simply believed him, perhaps indicating that they merely had an intellectual assent deficient of truly believing in him. To them, Jesus makes the major qualification. He tells these professing believers, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, truly. Uh, right here, Jesus makes one of the most important qualifiers about true saving faith that we find in the New Testament. In fact, we find those that claim to believe in him, he says in just a few verses later, To them, you are of your father, the devil. So obviously, they were not true believers. Uh, John 10 26, 27. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's what a disciple is. It's a follower. Uh, the true sheep are followers of Christ. Uh, the true sheep follow Christ. These are true believers. A kind of faith that doesn't follow is bogus. This is the way this, by the way, is the essence of easy believism. Easy believism says you can believe in a saving way without following. Well, that's contrary to Christ. Again, we're not saved by following, but if we truly have a saving faith, we will follow. Following is the result, not the means of salvation. W. E. Vine says uh, faith that saves produces discipleship. Passing impulses do not make disciples. And MacArthur says all Christians are disciples. Disciples is used as a synonym for believers. However, not all disciples are Christians. There is such a thing as false disciples. Okay, let's go uh, down the way here to page 165, evidence of being a true disciple. And then to the next page, we're going to have to cut out some things here because I want to get to some highlights here. But uh, page 166, the top of the page <clears throat> In saving faith, a person becomes a disciple, but then needs to grow as emphasized by Christ in Matthew 28. Maturity involves a process and may involve periods of carnality, in which case God is faithful to discipline his children in order to build holiness into their lives. So disciples are born and then developed. Uh, there are true and false disciples. The wheat and the tares grow together. Distinction is to be made between outward, external, mere form discipleship and genuine disciples of the heart. I list uh, six parallel passages on discipleship there. It's an interesting study. Uh, come down to the bottom of the page. Note all these passages deal with the concept of death to self following Christ. They all use similar terminology. Jesus clearly relates these parallel concepts to the issue of, uh, issues of salvation discipleship. And all these passages involve salific, which is uh, the word for salvation, Content in a context emphasizing salvation. Okay, uh, let's go to the next page, uh, page 168. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul, uh, who he says is a pattern of those who are going to believe on Jesus Christ to everlasting life in 1 Timothy 1.16. Uh, note under the references there on page 168, at the top, uh, <clears throat> there can be no doubt that Paul had a lordship conversion. This is the essence of saving faith, where one recognizes Christ's sovereign lordship authority over them. Uh, Paul's conversion experience 
is in total agreement with the conversion of doubting Thomas. Uh, and then I recount that under that reference. And note that Paul's lordship conversion is entirely consistent with being saved by faith alone. Recognition of Christ as Lord is a matter of faith. Right kind of faith. Twice in Philippians 3.9, Paul emphasizes that he now has righteousness which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So it's not contrary to faith. It is the right kind of faith. The fact that is Jesus alone is what the New Testament Christianity is all about. Everything else must be counted loss, and our faith must be in Jesus alone as Lord and Savior. This is the essence of saving faith. Okay, uh, let's come across the page, uh, page 169, right in the middle of the page. Uh, Jesus insists on being number one. In Matthew 10, 37, he said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In Mark 10, 21, he said to the rich young ruler, Go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross and follow me. So Jesus made it very clear. He needs to be number one over the closest of family relationships. He needs to be number one in terms of your possessions, which was the issue of the rich young ruler. Jesus really does insist on being number one. Uh, come down to the bottom of the page, mere believer or believing follower. In many polls, a majority of Americans still claim to hold to some form of Christianity. Yet in one survey, when asked follow-up questions, only a small percentage of those claiming to be born again could be classified as having any credible biblical worldview. For example, only a very small percentage agreed that salvation is a gift of God and cannot be earned. Uh, survey upon survey and poll after poll repeatedly show that for all their professions, American Christians don't generally live any different than the world. Conclusion, most professing Christians are not really Christian. Uh, Titus 1.16, they profess to know God. They're professors. They profess to know God. But in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Uh, note, uh, bottom of the page, on page 170, under related discipleship terminology, uh, biblical terminology is safe terminology. And uh, note, uh, we should note, bottom, bottom of the page here, we should note that saving faith itself is an act of obedience, which I have emphasized, and, I, and that there's a lot of ramifications in saying that. Um, Paul both begins and ends his great treatise of Romans by emphasizing obedience to the faith. I mean, this is his calling, to bring people to the obedience of the faith. He says it in chapter 1, chapter 16, chapter 6, chapter 15, all over in Romans. Uh, we are not saved by the obedience of works, but rather by the obedience of faith. But having the obedience of faith then demonstrates itself in the obedience of works. A saving faith is a faith that works. Okay, uh, let's talk, and here's where I'm going to spend the bulk of our time here, on uh, the nature of grace. Uh, here's where we have a lot of disagreement in Christianity. And uh, let's talk about grace. Uh, grace is the undeserved, unearned, unmerited favor of God. That's grace. Uh, grace is all God's doing. The thing about grace is you don't earn it, right? You don't say, well, I did this so I get grace. No, no, no. Uh, grace is undeserved. Uh, it's all God's doing, and therefore all the glory belongs to Him and Him alone. Uh, for of him and through him and to him are some things. No, 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 no. All things. All things. To whom be glory forever. Romans eleven 
36. The true gospel is, above all, the gospel of the grace of God. Grace and works are mutually exclusive, uh, but grace works in harmony with faith. Romans 4, 16 says, There it is, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So faith and grace work in harmony. Uh, you don't say, well, uh, faith is contrary to grace. No, it's not. Uh, grace must be received. Grace does not negate the reality of human response or human responsibility. Uh, there is mystery tension regarding God's sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. But at the end of the day, all the glory goes to God because salvation is totally of the Lord. So uh, saved by the grace of Christ's cross work. In fact, when we say, uh, by grace are you saved, we could say, by the cross you are saved. <clears throat> the cross is the greatest demonstration of, of grace. That's why we call it the gospel of grace. So uh, God's grace stands against all the religions of the world. It's what makes Christianity unique, including the varied forms of compromised Christianity. Let me talk a little bit about this. Go down to the last uh, big paragraph before the insert there at the bottom of the page. However, even much of professing Christendom perverts the gospel of grace. This is true. Most that's called Christian is not true Christian. Uh, one common way this is done is through sacramentalism. A majority of those who call themselves Christian hold to some form of this error that contradicts the true gospel of grace. This error says that sacraments, for example, baptism, are the means of receiving saving grace, as if water somehow had something to do with washing your sins away. Uh, when I got out of Bible college and started doing some deep reading on my own, I was shocked to learn, very shocked to learn, since none of my professors told me this, and they all held Martin Luther in a very high status, which in one sense you do want to do. I mean, he was a courageous man who took tremendous stands in many ways. But I was shocked to learn that Martin Luther did not really hold to faith alone in Christ alone, in the same sense as I did. Now, I think if Luther was here, he would say, yes, I do. And he'd be so strong about it, I'd have to go sit down over there. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure. But, uh, you know, I had a real vested interest in studying this because I had family that were in this, uh, you know, Lutheranism, and uh, this became a contention point. This young startup, fiery Baptist over here who's saying, no, it doesn't have anything. And so they were getting their pastor to come after me. And we, so, you know, I got into it. So, well, let's see, what, what is this really teaching here? Uh, yes, on the one hand, he said he did, uh, but his theology was full of double talk, as I discovered was typical of the mainline reformers on the issue of the sacraments. This is a problem I have with really pretty much uh, most all the reformers, except for the radical reformers, which is who I would align with, the Anabaptists and the radical reformers, who said, no, 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 we throw all of that out the window, and, uh, you know, Anna is again. We have to be baptized as believers. Believer's baptism. Uh, so uh, the large catechism of Martin Luther, hence, uh, and this is... Uh, you know, translated by Robert Fisher. Hence, it is well described as a divine, blessed, fruitful, and gracious water. For through the word, baptism receives the power. Baptism receives the power to become the washing of regeneration, as St. Paul calls it in Titus 3.5. Thus, faith clings to the water and believes it to be baptism in which there is sheer salvation in life. Oh, I got a problem with that. You say, well, I don't. I, then we got a problem. <laughs> I have a problem with that. Uh, Paul ends uh, in the next page, page 172, 
Uh, Luther's concept of baptism did not differ markedly from the Roman Catholic view. He retained much of the Roman ceremony connected with the rite. Luther taught that baptism is necessary to salvation and in fact produces regeneration in the person. That, my friends, is another gospel. You say, well, I just can't believe it. I couldn't believe it either. Study it for yourself. And uh, some of the Reformed guys I have a problem with too. Uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, Question 92. What is a sacrament? Well, a sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Uh, They're applied through the sacrament. Uh, That's a concern. And this is where you get infant baptism that brings uh, the child into the new covenant. Uh, The ramifications of that become very serious in a hurry. Uh, Let's go down to uh, B, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is sovereign, number one. Number two, human responsibility. And uh, top of page 173. I wish we had time to read through all of this, but we don't here. But uh, note uh, that note at the top of page 173. In the final analysis, salvation is entirely a result of God's grace, and yet there is human responsibility in the equation. I emphasize a God-centered theology and soteriology. I emphasize grace. I recognize human responsibility and accountability. So let's talk about this tension between uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility, especially as I'm talking about the right kind of faith, which requires obedience, which is a human response. Uh, Second paragraph there, under our uh, title there, there is much baggage with both systems of Calvinism and Arminianism. There are all kinds of variations and degrees of emphasis. One man calls himself a moderate Calvinist. Another, more hardcore Calvinist, may say he's an Arminian. Uh, Which is it? In this word game, he who defines the terms wins the argument. So both might be right or wrong, depending on who defines the terms. Therefore, if I have to have a label, I would prefer it to be a Biblicist. You know, that's what what my T-shirt's about, right? Fun fact, I am a Biblicist. Uh, I want to follow the Bible uh, wherever an inductive study takes me. In this discussion, it leads me to biblical tensions uh, that are past finding out. I think you consider the whole counsel of God. You bring all the factors to the table. There are tensions here that we cannot completely figure out. And that's what I mean by being a biblicist. I was uh, reading an article here. uh, It's called, uh, We Stand or Fall on These Truths. It's by Richard Vargas, who's the executive director for the IFCA, which I'm a member of, Independent Fundamental Churches of America. And he says, uh, although they would not deny sola scriptura, some of our Reformed brethren have drifted from the Bible as their sole authority when they have insisted that creeds and confessions are necessary for the understanding of Scripture. They've kind of, and boy, he lists them here too, if if you want the the names here. But, But he goes on to say, unfortunately, many within the Reformed community use the term, you ready for this? use the term biblicist as an insult against those seeking to maintain the authority of the Word of God above all else. I am personally not insulted to be called a biblicist, but wear such a name as a badge of honor. Well, amen. 
I can agree with the spirit of what he's saying there. We want to be biblicists. Uh, bottom of the page here, I have a, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism. Uh, this is from Spurgeon. Uh, when a Calvinist says that all things happen according to the predestination of God, he speaks the truth. And I am willing to be called a Calvinist. But when an Arminian says that when a man sins, uh, the sin is his own. And if he continues in sin and perishes, his eternal damnation will lie entirely at his own door. I believe he speaks the truth, though I'm not willing to be called an Arminian. But then he says, the fact is, there is some truth in both of these systems of theology. Um, That's an interesting statement. Uh, God chose certain individuals to salvation, but they freely choose Christ. Both are equally present in the salvation dynamic. To diminish God's sovereign choice is to go against teaching of Scripture. Likewise, to diminish human responsibility is to deny the teaching of Scripture. You say, well, you have to choose. Well, I, I choose to be a biblicist, I'm content to live with the tensions. Now, you might not be, and boy, I have have people on both sides. You know, I think when you're really getting shot at from both sides, you're probably where you need to be. But uh, note, uh, top of page 174. Uh, This is from uh, James Ekman, who was, uh, you know, president of Grace uh, before it went under for, for quite a few years. The relationship between the two is likened to a railroad track. The two parts of the track are perfectly parallel. You need both parts to make a track. One uh, without the other makes the track, uh, makes travel on the track impossible. When a person stands on the track and looks into the future, they seem to come together. But as long as the person walks the tracks, they remain parallel. So it is with the interplay between divine sovereignty of choice in salvation and the matter of human responsibility. Both are equally taught in Scripture. As long as we remain in this world, in our finiteness, we cannot reconcile this seeming antinomy. Antinomy is something you cannot figure out. You cannot bring it together. Uh, In fact, all attempts to reconcile the two have been unsuccessful. Both the reality of divine sovereignty and God's choice of those who will be saved and the truth of human responsibility must be held in theological tension. That's the position of the biblicist, as I am defining it. Eternity shall at once be a great eye-opener and a great mouth-shutter. Jim Elliott, I believe that's going to be true. I'm sure it's true for me. Uh, I am prepared to be greatly humbled when I step into glory. I don't think I'm going to go there arrogantly. I'm going to go humbled. A great eye-opener, a great mouth-shutter, starting with me. Uh, Calvinism champions the sovereignty of God, and Arminianism champions human responsibility. The problem is that the Bible teaches both. As I read both sides of the debate, I find men who think they have pretty much figured it out. I can follow their reasoning, and if I keep in step with their neat little deductive systems, it all seemingly makes sense. But when I read the Bible inductively, I find tensions that are beyond what I can comprehend. Inductive Bible study trumps deductive reasoning based on proof texting. And everybody's got their verses. And you can prove your point if you just want to stick with those proof texting verses. I'll give you that. The mystery remains, and our three-pound brains just can't fathom it. Uh, Romans 9. When I read Romans 9 deductively, I clearly see the Calvinist slant of things. Uh, You know, John Piper says it was like a tiger that ate him up and he never recovered. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Clearly, uh, God sovereignly controls all things. If I stop at Romans 9, I may emphasize only the God side of things. Uh, Romans 9, 16, so then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. 
Yeah, God emphasis for sure. But note uh, what I say in the footnote here. The Calvinist overplays his hand when he puts the emphasis singularly on individual election in Romans 9 through 11. When in fact the major emphasis throughout is on national election related to Israel, which is grounded in headship realities as seen in the patriarchs. I'm getting ready to teach you Romans. So, uh, you know, we'll be looking at this in a lot more detail. Uh, Jeremiah 18 has application to this discussion of Romans 9. You, you can't really think about Romans 9. Again, maybe we want to go back and look what Paul's building on in the Old Testament before we just zero in on a proof text. Uh, Jeremiah 18 has, has application. For example, in Jeremiah 18, 5 and 6, the emphasis is on God and His sovereignty molding and shaping the nation of Israel. God is sovereign in matters of judgment and none can thwart Him. He alone determines what He is going to do in relation to the nations. However, Jeremiah 18 also shows that in His sovereignty, God often makes provision for people to repent. And if they do, uh, God will forego the judgment that He has threatened. Thus, in Jeremiah 18, there is a fascinating interplay between an emphasis on God's sovereignty in relation to the nations and at the same time on human responsibility involving human choice uh, within that context. This is significant because Paul in Romans 9, 20 and 21, borrows from Jeremiah 18, 6 to make his point. I am convinced that there are some New Testament scholars who hone in so tightly on passages like Romans 9 that they get tunnel vision. Balance and wisdom bring to the table Old Testament revelation and then builds New Testament doctrine upon the foundation of the previous revelation. This is what Paul did in Romans 9. It is good to study the whole counsel of God instead of just camping on a few select text-proof verses. This is the stuff of being Yep, you got it. A biblicist who rightly divides the word. Uh, next page, page 175, Romans 10. Uh, when I read Romans 10 deductively, I clearly see the slant of human responsibility that the Arminian wants to argue. Uh, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, you have to call on the name of the Lord. You have to respond. Uh, how are they going to respond if there's not a preacher who goes and, and tells them? Uh, if I read this chapter, if I only read this chapter, I may emphasize the human side of things. Romans 11, when I get to Romans 11 and inductively consider the whole discussion of Romans 9 through 11, I discover two things. Number one, all these things are under the sovereign hand of God, His ways, and two, they are past finding out. I'm, I'm good with that. That's what the Bible teaches me. It's emphasizing a biblicist view. You can't completely figure this out. Uh, under the Romans 11.33 text, I once had a wise old theology professor now in heaven who used to say to us, God promotes some things, permits some things, and prevents some things, but all these things are under the sovereignty of God. The longer I study the Bible inductively, the more convinced I am that the old professor was right. Exactly how it all fits together, I don't know. And according to Romans 11.33, neither does anyone else, no matter what they say. Uh, Robert Thomas, you know, greatly respected in our circles for many years, kind of like a premier professor at Master's Seminary uh, for many years. Uh, I like what he says. The scripture furnishes numerous instances where God's sovereignty <clears throat> and man's free will interplay with each other. Both are biblical teachings. For man to try to either alter one to find a reconciliation is an attempt to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree 
in an attempt of man to escape his finitude so as to become like an infinite God. The best we humans can do is to accept the Bible's teachings about both the absolute sovereignty of God and the freedom of men to make their own moral decisions whether to believe in Christ or not without changing either teaching. From the standpoint of human logic and philosophical reasoning, the two teachings are in conflict. But from a biblical standpoint, they are not. Uh, Jump down to, uh, under the Walter Chantry quote, Calvinism emphasizes sovereignty, Arminianism, human responsibility. Calvinism emphasizes divine election, Arminianism emphasizes human volition. Calvinism emphasizes predestination, Arminianism emphasizes personal faith. Calvinism emphasizes faith as a divine gift. Arminianism emphasizes faith as a human response. Who is right? Well, the fact is God is sovereign, but under the umbrella of his sovereignty, all these realities play a part. How exactly it all fits together is a mystery past finding out. Page 176. You do understand we got 10 minutes to go to page 190, right? Uh, Page 176, the middle of the page, Ironside. I like this quote from Ironside. Do not exercise yourself in matters too high for you. Just be simple enough to take God at his word. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, let's go there. Page 177, middle of the page, the pendulum swings, ridiculous extreme, bypassing the truth which lieth between. Uh, What about the place of prayer? What about the place of prayer? Page 178, top of page 178. The, uh, you know, right at the top there, the quote from Robert Thomas, the interaction between the sovereignty of God and the prayers of his people is part of the ultimate mystery of existence. Again, there's mystery there. Uh, God is sovereign. He knows the beginning, uh, the end from the beginning, before the beginning. I mean, uh, let's go here to the bottom of page 179. Uh, where I say there, uh, I too champion the sovereignty of God, but not at the expense of what the Bible says about human responsibility. Charles Spurgeon was very definitely Calvinistic through and through. However, he was of the ilk that put Scripture ahead of his systematized theology when he saw a conflict. That is why both Calvinists and Arminian alike selectively quote Spurgeon approvingly at various points. I believe the spirit of Spurgeon at this point is humble and godly and one we should seek to emulate. Notice what he says. My love of consistency with my own doctrinal views is not great enough to allow me knowingly to alter a single text of Scripture. I have great respect for orthodoxy, but my reverence for inspiration is far greater. I would sooner a hundred times over appear to be inconsistent with myself than be inconsistent with the Word of God. That, my friends, is the spirit of a true biblicist. Uh, Charles Hodge, it is the duty of every theologian to subordinate his theories to the Bible and teach not what seems to him to be true or reasonable, but simply what the Bible teaches. Uh, Richard Simmons on next page, page 180, uh, about... Halfway down there, for hundreds of years, people have wrestled with two seemingly incompatible teachings of the Bible, God's overarching, omniscient determining of all that happens in his creation, called providence or foreknowledge, and man's freedom and responsibility to choose his own path called free will. The biblical antinomy presents divine sovereignty and human responsibility as a both-and situation, but human reasoning seeks an either-or. Skip uh, down to... uh, Let's go down here to uh, 
leaders' labels and libels regarding the age-old debate over God's sovereignty and human responsibility, undoubtedly eternity will reveal much error in regard to all three. People tend to put great stock in leaders whom they admire and seemingly quote and follow them as the final authority. Uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I've, I've, read, I've read more widely, and it's been good for me. Some people just, you know, just the choir. We never leave the choir, you know, and it's the Bible's the main thing, always the Bible. Uh, but it's good to read. Uh, in fact, no one has a corner on God's truth. God has given teachers to the church, and it is profitable to study them, and I do. But the Bible must always be the ultimate authority in all matters of faith. Uh, many give lip service to this, but appear to major on the studies of men and minor on the study of the Word. They end up developing or embracing theologies that are unbalanced, in sync with the systems of men, but out of sync with an inductive study of Scripture. This often fosters pride in the party spirit that was prevalent at Corinth, uh, thus emulating the wisdom of the world. One says, I'm a Paul. Another, I'm a Apollos. Are you not carnal, uh, Paul says. Eon Murray says, as Spurgeon says, you may look down with contempt on some who do not know as much as you. And yet they may have twice your holiness and be doing more service to God. On, this, on the subject of this book, there is only one point to me at which Spurgeon's later thought showed a variation with his earlier years. He very largely abandoned the practice of calling other Christians hyper-Calvinists or Arminians. Isn't that interesting? Spurgeon, in his latter years, largely abandoned that. Now, earlier he was fiery, but in his latter years, he pulled back on that. Um, as towering figures as the Reformers were, we must remember they were grievously in error in some areas of their beliefs and practices, even though they brought a great return to biblical religion. Uh, we should not make them the touchstone of truth. And of course, that's a quote from uh, Gordon Olson on the next page. Uh, Philip Schaff, page 181. The Bible gives us a theology which is more human than Calvinism, more divine than Arminianism, and more Christian than either of them. Well, there's maybe an element of truth there. Okay, let's go to uh, page 182. And I like to say this. I'm in the middle, and I can't solve the riddle. Okay? You say, Pastor, we want you to solve the riddle. Sorry, can't do it. Uh, there are various shades of Calvinism, various shades of Arminianism, various shades of Molinism, various shades of corporate election, and on and on. All of these systems do their best to try and figure out the seemingly antinomy that exists between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And yet in all these systems, there is what I call a blessed inconsistency. Sometimes I will smile. Blessed inconsistency. Uh, there is some truth or perhaps much in these various systems of thought, and yet the full truth is deeper than any of them. I start with the presupposition that God is always right. Even if I don't understand it, God is right. Who are we to argue with God? At the end of the day, we bow in humility before God and His truth. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are infinitely higher than our ways. Uh, page 183, the light of conviction versus the light of conversion. Uh, if you look at the average theology book, you probably won't find a section on the doctrine of conviction related to salvation. It might be referenced somewhere briefly, but this key doctrine is often overlooked. And I point out two areas of concern. Number one, uh, many confuse an experience of conviction for true conversion. Uh, conversion denotes turning from sin to God. However, a mere temporary experience of the enlightenment of conviction does not equal conversion. 
Number two, many downplay or eliminate the factor of human responsibility in relation to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. Uh, Compare the issues of infant baptism. Uh, Divine conviction inherently calls for human response. So the light of conviction. Uh, There is this reality. The Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Uh, Come down to the uh, B.F. Westcott quote. He who convicts another places the truth of the case in dispute in a clear light before him so that it must be seen and acknowledged as truth. He who then rejects the conclusion which the exposition involves rejects it with eyes open and at his peril. Truth seen as truth carries with it condemnation to all who refuse to welcome it. I think that becomes an ultimate issue on Judgment Day. It's not that people didn't know. They didn't respond to the light that was given to them by the Spirit, the light of conviction. Uh, Page 184, I talk about the light of conversion. And then page 185, apostasy sinning with eyes wide open. Uh, We have several examples of this. Balaam uh, said that he was a man who falls down with his eyes wide open. I mean, he received tremendous revelation from God and knew it, and yet is classified among the, the, the rank unbelievers as we look other places in the New Testament. People like Judas, I uh, think that's what the blasphemy of the Spirit's about. Uh, let's go to page uh, 186, and uh, I say there, you know, after quoting Second Peter, which talks about... Uh, those through the, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known. They knew that was the problem. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. He's really talking about the gospel than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Sunday said, a man can slip into hell with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. Uh, Yeah, I think that's uh, what is being illustrated there. Okay, we're going to take a little break until 7.30. I'll pick it up there. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for truth. I pray as we uh, grow together, I pray the Holy Spirit would have his way in all of our hearts. Uh, Ultimately, each one of us will give an account to you uh, personally uh, for the truth as seen in the scriptures. And so, Lord, again, uh, we thank you for the things we're studying. pray it would be profitable. Bless uh, the food now and, and the fellowship. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I think we're going to go ahead and get started here. Uh, I'm not sure how far we're going to get tonight, but I, I, I pretty much can promise you we're going to end up on page 215. I don't know how far we're going to get, but that's where we're going to go. Uh, just a couple of slides to get us started here. My slides. There we go. To escape, this is uh, Tozer, uh, to escape the error of salvation by works, we have fallen into the opposite error of salvation without obedience. Obedience isn't legalism, it's a, a symptom of genuine salvation. And then uh, one more here. If we are not changed by grace, then we are not saved by grace. Again, Tozer. Okay, let's pick it up. Uh, we're talking uh, the obedience of faith versus what I call zap theology. And uh, note a couple of, I guess, three paragraphs down there. God is sovereign in salvation. Of him, through him, to him are all things. 
Uh, left to ourselves, there is none who seeks after God. Left to our own devices, we all go astray, never turn around. Only a grace intervention can change the rebel course of depravity. Yet this reality is, does not cancel out the fact of human responsibility or the necessity of human response. We see this reality early in the scriptures in relation to Cain, and then the rest of the Bible builds upon this premise. God intervened in Cain's life. So God's always the one who takes the first move. He's always the initiator. Uh, we never make the move towards God. It's always God working in our lives. Uh, today, if you'll hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I mean, when God's at work, you, when God's speaking, you need to listen. Uh, God intervened in Cain's life by speaking, <coughs> excuse me, by speaking truth to him. Uh, God warned him and put the responsibility of personal choice before him, for which he was then accountable. Uh, Genesis 4, 7, God speaking to Cain, if you do well, will you not be accepted? I mean, the issue is uh, Cain's got his offering, Abel's got his offering. Obviously, Abel brought the prescribed offering that God uh, demanded. Cain's doing his own thing, his own self-willed religion, uh, his own offering, uh, doing it his way. And God says, you know, you just need to line up with truth here, uh, with what I've prescribed. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. You know, God puts the onus on Cain here. He didn't say, but Cain, I realize you can't help it, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to somehow turn something inside you and, and, you know, you don't have anything to do with it. It's just me changing you. Uh, no, he says, you have a responsibility here, Cain, and I'm telling you, I'm intervening in your life. Some people have what I call zap theology. They believe that somehow God just zaps people with faith. The elect are the zapped and the non-elect are the non-zapped. With this type of theology, one can end up baptizing babies because personal response has nothing to do with faith. It's just a matter of God zapping the elect. No knowledge of the truth is required. I don't see zap theology as being consistent with Scripture. Top of page 187. While acknowledging mystery tensions here, I see the Bible teaching the necessity of an obedient response called the obedience of faith. I see it in the warning of Jesus and saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I mean, Jesus saying, listen, listen. Those holding to zap theology basically see the elect as just robots or puppets preordained according to uh, the sovereign prerogative of God. I think most holding to this would deny this classification, but in actuality, when one re totally removes all human response and human responsibility from the equation, you end up with just a straight-jacket form of determinism. I mean, that's where you logically end up. Now, God is God, and if he works this way or wants to work this way, I bow before him. Uh, he has no argument for me because he is God. So I'm perfectly good with this. If God just, you know, straight jacket determines and human response and responsibility has nothing to do with it, okay, I, I bow. I mean, that's the way it is. Um, but uh, notice what I say there. However, when I study the scriptures, I don't see God revealing himself in this way. I see him inviting, appealing, urging, reasoning, holding people accountable for the choices they make in relation to the light given. Zap theology has a major problem with texts like Luke 7.30. Luke 7.30, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Talking about uh, uh, 
John the Baptist. How can it be that God just arbitrarily determines whom he wants to be saved? And yet it says here in Luke 7.30 that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves. I mean, the onus is put on them here. Uh, God's will was for them to respond positively to the message of repentance, but they refused. The onus is on them for rejecting the will of God, not on God for not wanting them to be saved. Romans is the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have. Romans has two great faith bookends, both which emphasize the obedience of faith. And we've covered that. Next, uh, this is the whole point. Uh, The gospel Paul preached demanded a response of obedience. The gospel is the message about Christ that demands an obedient response of faith regarding the person of Christ. Uh, Come down uh, towards the bottom of the page there. Accountability and judgment make no sense apart from the reality of personal responsibility. And then some emphasize that regeneration must come before faith. Well, I see them both happening simultaneously. Uh, Next page, page 188. We'll interact with this a little bit here. John wrote the entire gospel of John so we might believe. His purpose statement in John 20, 31 says, I wrote so you... So believing you may have life in his name. Note he doesn't say, I wrote so having life you may believe. But rather the other way around. That believing you may have life. John's order here is believing comes first, then life. Life is the result of believing. I would see the same order in John 1, 12 and 13. Come down to the middle of the page. There are various scripture references used by those who emphasize that faith is simply a gift of God independent of human responsibility and human response. And the key verse, really, certainly a key one, is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Uh, but note, uh, skip down there a couple of paragraphs. In Ephesians 2, 8, the little pronoun that has caused quite a stir in the theological community in terms of how to understand it. There are essentially three views. Number one, it refers to faith because it is the closest antecedent. Number two... It refers to the whole previous phrase, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And number three, it refers to the subject of salvation, which in context is the major topic of discussion. And I hold to this view. Uh, Top of page 189. The problem is that the pronoun that is neuter in form, and the word faith and also grace is feminine in form. Therefore, grammatically, that must be referring to the whole idea of salvation under discussion in the context. Paul's whole train of thought is dealing with the subject of salvation, so this makes sense. Even Calvin saw this, and I quote from John Calvin here, many persons restrict the word gift to faith alone. Uh, But Paul is only repeating, in other words, the former sentiment. His meaning is not that faith is a gift of God, but that salvation is given to us by God, or that we obtain it, by the gift of God. Uh, A.T. Robertson, grace is God's part, faith ours, and that is neuter, not feminine, and so refers not to faith or grace, feminine also, but to the act of being saved by grace conditioned on faith on our part. Okay, let's go to the next page. Um, And uh, halfway down the page on page 190, God is the seeker, mankind is responsible. Uh, God is always the seeker, as I say. He always takes the initiative. Left to ourselves, people never seek. However, as God seeks and brings about conviction, people are responsible to respond. Left to themselves, they can't. But when God reveals truth to people, they are responsible to respond and are held accountable for it. 
After Adam sinned, it wasn't Adam who went looking for God. Rather, it was God who called to Adam and said, where are you? Uh, This is always the direction. God is ever the seeker. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Uh, Page 191, towards the bottom of the page, the last invitation of the Bible, Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. But you got to want to, whoever desires, Come. You have to come. You say, well, if I'm the elect, I'll come. Yeah, that's true. I agree. But you got to come. The invitation is given to come with, with accountability for the response left to the individual. Whoever desires is invited to come and partake freely. All the way through from Genesis to Revelation, we see the reality that God is the initiator who seeks and, and invites, who convicts and reveals. And then people are responsible for how they are going to respond to the revelation and working of God. Uh, Top of page 192. That is what final judgment of the lost is is about. Uh, It is about their rejection of God's plainly revealed truth. In John 12, 37, we read, Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. The evidence was there all over the place. The issue is never a lack of evidence. It's that people reject the light that is given and are accountable for that rejection. And uh, then I quote John 3.18. Under Christ died for all. There are those who don't believe Jesus died for all. They hold that the atonement only applies to the elect. I contend that the Bible teaches that Christ did die for all, which is why all are accountable for accepting the gospel. Uh, If Jesus did not die for all, then there's no gospel for the non-elect to reject. Uh, but clearly there is, you know, 2 Thessalonians 1, inflaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They don't obey it. They won't respond. Uh, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Christ at his second coming comes to judge those who do not obey the gospel. This is why judgment is coming upon them. Uh, Why are they being judged for what does not apply to them? The gospel is that Christ died for our sins. If they are held accountable for not obeying the gospel, it can only mean that it applied to them and they refuse to accept it. This is consistent with Hebrews 10.27, which speaks of the worthy punishment that applies to those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. Peter speaks of false teachers even denying the Lord who bought them. Jesus paid for them. The problem is they deny him. That's why condemnation. Okay, uh, page uh, 193, grace and election. Let's talk about the other side of the coin for just a little bit. Uh, The word election simply means choice. Did God elect believers or do believers elect God? Ah, Well, the emphasis of Scripture is on God's election. It's always an election of grace. This is the God side of things. Left to ourselves, there is none that seeks after God. God is always a seeker. Yes, people respond, but only in relation to God's grace initiative. A key verse, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Uh, The New American Standard is more literal here. Uh, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Uh, The idea is, is that the love of God is behind His sovereign choice of them. Here is the doctrine of election. 
The word election means to pick or to choose, to elect. Uh, As believers, God picked us. He chose us. This is the doctrine of election. The reason why the elect were chosen is not specified in Scripture, other than it's according to God's grace and His good pleasure. So election is a doctrine that's been debated for centuries. Ironically, it's a doctrine that no one can completely fathom. So let's argue about it, right? Uh, Top of page 194. I find it interesting that sometimes people fight most intensely over things they don't fully understand or know. No one who takes Scripture seriously denies the reality of God's sovereign election, and yet no one can completely comprehend it. Election emphasizes that salvation is ultimately of God. It was His idea, not ours. It is based on his initiative, not ours. The lecture reminds us that salvation is God's work and that he who has begun this good work in us will complete it. He has chosen to do so. So, you know, salvation really from A to Z is all of God when it's all said and done. And that's why he gets all the glory. Homer Kent Jr., uh, the sovereign act of God chose some to experience the blessings of salvation. The reason or criteria for his choice have not been told to us except that it was according to his own good pleasure. Okay, you know, God is God. He can do whatever he wants to do. Like I say, I bow. God is God. And whatever his good pleasure, I'm good with it. Uh, When it comes to the doctrine of election, uh, people often get out of biblical balance. There are tensions here uh, regarding God's sovereign choice and the responsibility uh, of human uh, response. I want to go wherever Scripture leads me. I want to hold to an inductive view that brings all the verses to the table. That's why I call myself a Biblicist versus merely being a Calvinist or an Arminian, although I emphasize a God-centered theology. After all, of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Uh, Bible Knowledge Commentary, the difficulty in putting divine election and human responsibility together uh, is understanding how both can be true. Uh, That both are true is taught in the Bible. How both can be true is apparently incomprehensible to finite minds. No one has ever been able to explain this antinomy satisfactorily. I concur with that. Three things must be kept in biblical attention. Number one, God has chosen some for salvation. Undeniable. Uh, Two, whoever desires may come. Number three, everyone is responsible for what they do with Christ. Uh, All three of those are true. Okay, let's go to the next page. Uh, quote from MacArthur at the top of the page, since the problem cannot be resolved by our finite minds, the result is always to compromise one truth in favor of the other to weaken both by trying to take a position somewhere between them. Uh, We should let the antimony remain, believing both truths completely and leaving the harmonizing of them to God. It's not that God's sovereign election or predestination eliminates man's choice in faith. Divine sovereignty and human response are integral and inseparable parts of salvation, though exactly how they operate together, only the infinite mind of God knows. Again, I say amen. D.L. Moody said, the whosoever wills are the elect, and the whosoever wants are the non-elect. Indeed, that is true. Uh, Again, Ironside, over the door of heaven, whosoever will can come. Once inside, you look back and discover, chosen before the foundation of the world. Uh, Consistently in Scripture, we find God's sovereign choice dealt with side by side, with human responsibility. Okay, let's talk about uh, grace and sanctification. Positional sanctification, we covered that. Let's go to the next page. Page 196, practical or progressive sanctification. Uh, Here's the deal about sanctification. Uh, You know, our position never changes. In Christ, we are who we are, and we will never, that'll never change. 
We're forever forgiven. Uh, Positional sanctification results, however, in practical or progressive sanctification. And one verse that puts both together is Hebrews 10.14. For by one offering he is perfected forever. That's positional sanctification. Those who are being sanctified, uh, that's practical sanctification. So if the position is true, the practice will also be true. God will be at work in our lives. Um, jump down to uh, towards the bottom of the page. But note that positional sanctification is only half the story. Uh, it's, uh, it is only half of the verse. It's always good to read to the end of the sentence. It's amazing how much air one can get into uh, by simply not reading to the end of the sentence. And then read the sentence in context of the paragraph, and then, of course, read the paragraph in the context of the entire letter. Oh, yeah, well, that's good. Uh, Note it carefully that positional perfection in Hebrews 10, 14 applies only to those who are being sanctified. Okay, let's go uh, on. Let's skip a couple of pages. Page 199. Let's talk about evidence of salvation. Uh, I mentioned a number of things here. Uh, Number one, salvation is of the Lord and is by His grace and His grace alone. Uh, We champion grace. Uh, Middle of the page, the phrase, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, is shocking on three accounts. It says, all our righteousness, not merely some. I mean, every right thing you do, and I do, is soiled by our sinfulness. Uh, Righteousness are right things we do. Number three, uh, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. Uh, This is really graphic in Hebrew because filthy rags literally refer to the rags of a woman's menstrual period. So he's really making the point in a graphic sort of way. Page uh, 200, uh, number two, the only thing uh, we must do to be saved is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And even this act of saving faith is by God's grace. We don't arrive there apart from grace. Uh, Skip uh, those next three paragraphs, come down just above number three. And yet even our believing is a result of God's grace. Acts 18.27 speaks of those who believe through grace. We are saved by grace through faith, but all is based on grace. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.6 is very clear that it is God who gives the increase. As believers, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are not a self-made people. We are simply trophies of grace, and all the glory goes to God alone. Number three, faith faith alone saves, but the faith that saves does not remain alone. We have hammered this, so I'm not going to uh, cover that. Uh, let's, go to, uh, let's go to the bottom of page 201 there. Again, Spurgeon, the child of God works not for life, but from life. He does not work to be saved, but works because he is saved. Okay, page uh, 202, number four. <clears throat> I'm sorry for having to move so quickly here, but... But, number four, works of faith. The, the fruit of saving faith that works are not to be confused with seeking to do the law for justification. Uh, I mean, that's what uh, Galatians is about. Uh, number five on page 203, biblical teaching that emphasizes the nature of saving faith as being life-changing is not to be confused with legalism. Sometimes people want to say, you know, you're making a biblical emphasis on obedience. And they say, legalism No, obedience is not to be confused with legalism. And I I developed that here. Uh, Legalism is following a set of man-made rules and regulations in an effort to please God. Often legalism is wrongly defined. Biblical holiness is not legalism. Uh, The lordship of Christ is not legalism. 
Keeping the commandments of God in keeping with the new covenant is not legalism. Uh, Loving God obediently is not legalism. Properly applied wisdom principles are not legalism. So there's a lot that's called legalism that's not legalism. Uh, Skip down to the middle of the page here. Being sheep, people are attracted to various forms of legalism. It seems so spiritual. You know, follow my list and and I will see you as a very spiritual person. Okay, what's next? (laughs) Uh, It seems so spiritual, but in reality, it's deadly. There are two basic forms of legalism addressed in the New Testament. Both are addressed in in Galatians. There is a deadly legalism related to salvation. Uh, those that add anything to grace, God's unmerited favor, commit this error. Uh, jump down under the uh, reference of Galatians 1, 8, and 9. There is also a legalism related to sanctification. Uh, there are those who agree with salvation by grace, but then want to make sanctification, Christian living, about man-made rules and regulations. Uh, this is deadening in terms of bearing spiritual fruit. Okay, let's go to the next page, page 204. God alone is the judge, but he has called us to be lovingly concerned, discerning fruit inspectors. Uh, So note there, unbelievers do not generally know much of anything about the Bible, but it is amazing how many seem to know, judge not, of Matthew 7. I I don't know, somehow they have learned that verse. They, They know Matthew, they don't know where it's at, but they know somewhere in the Bible it says, judge not. And if you call them out on anything, judge not. Uh, and quote it whenever they're confronted with moral compromise. I mean, John the Baptist, he was a very judgmental fellow, calling everybody to repentance. Uh, They like to wiggle their finger and say, judge not without any consideration at all for the context. Uh, Judge not that you be not judged. Paul Washer says, people tell me, judge not lest you be judged. And I always tell them, twist not scripture lest you be like Satan. (laughs) Uh, There is a context to what Jesus is saying here in Matthew uh, 7. He is not saying to not judge at all, as if we should just throw all discernment and critical thinking to the wind. Uh, Even in this immediate context, what Jesus says about not casting your pearls before swine requires discernment and making judgment calls. In context, Jesus is condemning a certain kind of judgment, namely egotistical, hypocritical judgment. In 7.5, he plainly says the issue is hypocrisy. So we are not to judge Uh, hypocritically. Okay, let's go to uh, page uh, 206, uh, allowing for immaturity. And clarified carnality, believers who belong to the Lord are expected to manifest lives that are set apart for the Lord, that are in process, and that are fruit-bearing. Let's talk about evidences of salvation. Uh, I've got a a list of them here. Again, we're just going to name them. An obvious distinction. The Bible makes a clear distinction. 1 John's very strong between an unbeliever and a believer. A definite change. Um, Number two, uh, being born of God results in a transformed life. At the bottom of page 207. Let's go to page 208. I do apologize for getting into fourth gear here, but... um, Page 208, um, being born of God underlies all the evidence that one is a true believer as seen in 1 John. I mean, this is the underlying issue. If one is truly born of God, it means your life has been changed. And you are in the process of being changed. But things are different. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You now have the life of God in you. And that, that is a reality that makes a difference. 
Uh, note, uh, middle of the page here, being born of God does not mean the perfection of our life in terms of our practice, but it does mean a change in direction. It does not mean we are sinless in our practice, but it does mean we will sin less. Thanks, uh, thank you, Warren Wiersbe. Yeah, okay. Uh, there, number, top of page uh, 209, there will be some fruit. Uh, okay, let's go to page uh, 210. I told you, we're going to get to page 215, right? We are. Uh, a love for God. Uh, page 211, uh, note the third paragraph there. This is really key in my uh, theology and in my thinking. And I'm really presenting to you my studied, uh, my 38 years of study, my studied views of, of the right kind of faith, uh, my pretty deeply held convictions, you know, might hone a, something a little bit here or there, but uh, probably not a lot. Probably most of what I'm telling you is going to the grave with me, right? I mean, this is studied. This is where I'm at. Uh, third paragraph, in Matthew 10, Jesus radically says he did not come to bring peace but a sword. How's that for a statement? I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. What? Blessed are the peacemakers. What about that? Uh, he did not come to bring peace but a sword. He goes on to explain he's talking about division over him. There's going to be division. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to choose. You know, with Christ? Well, I'd like to go with Christ, but I'm going to put my, my family member uh, above Christ. No. No. Uh, even households will be seriously divided to the point of enmity. Some will accept Christ, some won't. That's the essential issue. That's the essential issue. And Christ goes on to show that anyone who loves family more than him is not worthy of him. Christ clearly makes himself the issue and that he must be embraced as most important. Allegiance to him must be supreme. I mean, he said it. In Mark 10, the issue with the rich young ruler is eternal life. I mean, that's the issue. He comes wanting eternal life. Uh, this emphasis on eternal life brackets this whole related section. Three times in context, Christ makes the issue entrance into the kingdom. The rich young ruler came as a religionist and yet felt something was lacking. He wanted to know what else he had to do. Jesus, in effect, told him to jettison his possessions, his possessions, God, and follow him as God. He, in effect, told the young man to sell out for him. This became the test. Would he embrace Jesus as most valuable or cling to his earthly goods? What would be his Lord? That was the essential issue. God is no respecter of persons. There is no partiality with him. Uh, there was not one standard for the rich young ruler and another for others. No, the nature of saving faith is consistent across the board related to all people of all ages. A true saving faith embraces Jesus for who he is as Lord and Savior. It embraces him as most important. Indeed, he is precious to those who truly believe. The rest are just pretenders. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 16, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. Spurgeon, you will have to change your mind about the Lord Jesus. He is nothing to you now, but he will have to be everything to you if you are to be saved by him. Okay, uh, page 212, you see it there? Page 213, you see it there? Page 214, and uh, page 215. All right, we got there. Uh, we're going to pick it up at the place of water baptism. You know, I've had several great theological battles in my ministry. Um, battle regarding uh, baptismal regeneration, 
early in my ministry for years, big battle. A battle over the issue of um, integration. Uh, is the Bible sufficient or do we need to bring psychology? And so I, I really took a stand on the sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. And then the lordship battle. Uh, how, must uh, we uh, accept Christ as Lord and Savior or do we just need fire insurance? You know, a Savior who saves us from fire at the end, but, you know, we don't have to pay any attention to his lordship. Uh, those are the three great uh, 